0: With Kendall Martinez, right? She was a candidate within Missouri for the State House 5th District. She is a trans person. That along with her journey through her candidacy are among the many reasons why I wanted to speak to her. Also, given the fact that she is very much so like myself, and many people who listen to this is Black and Puerto Rican. And to, navigate,
1: right
0: <laughs> <laughs> and to navigate that space as a trans person, I can only imagine how impossible that must feel <laughs> in Missouri. <laughs> Technically, many people call that Midwest, but that's Southern. That's real Southern. So it's incredible to have you here, Kendall. I am so glad you were able to make it today.
1: Thank you for inviting me on here. I'm, you know, I'm excited to not only share my story, but hopefully be able to uplift those individuals who are like me or who are like you, you know, and knowing that if there's no chairs, you can pull yourself a chair and have a seat at that table as well. Because at the end of the day, our voices is what helped make this country where it is today and not by the right or the left side, but as a humane equal, and diverse country. That's what we need. So I thank you. Yeah,
0: no problem. No problem. It's an honor to have you on. As I said, I'm very grateful you've had time for me today. I want to ask you really one of the first questions, insofar as you can. Can you go a bit to your background and to how growing up was for you in Missouri? Did you grow up within Missouri?
1: Yeah, so I am originally from Chicago, Illinois, Southside to be exact, 79. And at the point, um, I removed moved to uh, Palmyra, Missouri, which is northeast Missouri, over by Hannibal, Missouri, uh, in the late nineties. And my experience here it has it's a learning, it was a huge learning experience coming from an area where I saw a, a huge population of my people. To being one of maybe three African Americans, probably the only Afro-Puerto Rican in my school, it, it was dealt with lots of inquiries about who I am as an individual, as well as being LGBTQ. Um, we didn't really see a lot of that, honestly. I'll be completely frank. It's, it was still homophobic as hell here. It, it, it technically, to a scope, even today, is still pretty homophobic, transphobic, um, and that's just due to the lack of that accessibility to seeing beyond the confines of Palmyra, Missouri. When it came down to it, like I grew up in a single parent household, my father, he passed away when I was little. So I don't really have a lot of regulation of him. But I do know for sure, um, with the love of my mom, she works in at the school district here in town. And through her love to not only what she does as a professional, but her love for making sure that me and my sister have that opportunity that a lot of people don't really have, that helped me grow into who I am today. And it wasn't until when I... Went off to Lincoln University in Jefferson City. Shout out to my Lincolnites, LU. <laughs> I, I, I had to realize that just because I am somebody that's "quote unquote" out the norm doesn't mean that my voice and my presence is valued. And I learned that over time through my work of advocacy as well as amplifying my own personal story. And I think that's important. that was a catalyst of my experience here in Missouri that, kind of, that pretty much led me to want to run for office.
0: And that's what many people don't understand about being minority. And on top of that, double minority and then like a triple minority. And in your case, like a quadruple minority. So Black and Puerto Rican. And then you are a trans person. And on top of that, you are a woman. Like it's, it, it's, it has so many different layers. Really the reason why I started this project is really to have the conversation with people who do not generally get interviewed, who don't have that conversation and to bring the perspective that people like yourself bring. Because first of all, the majority of people would draw attention to the fact that yes, you are trans. But the only reason why that in many cases is relevant, why that's brought up in the conversation around who you are as a person, why that is so defining for you is because that is so, as you said, quote unquote, out of the norm to so many people. And the reason why it is such a sticking point for so many people is because that is quote unquote out of them. That's not something Mm -hmm. that they are used to seeing or knowing.
1: Yeah. And I even go deeper, like when I was on the streets of Ferguson during Michael Brown, I had a lot of backlash from the very community that watched me grow up because they felt like I was advocating on a quote-unquote murderer or this figure of monstrosity. It was like, no, Michael Brown was only 18 years old. There's no way, shape and form, that an 18-year-old Black boy that's a little bit taller, a little bit muscular, can overpower a white man uh, and legitimize how a white police officer, racist white police officer, found a justification to... Him in that scope, as well as leaving his poor, lifeless body in the streets for four and a half hours—it's a complete horrible monstrosity, and I—that's I, why, when it comes to the nitty-gritty, I tell her how it is. What they are trying to teach. Is false history. What they're trying to do is false, it's a part of a fantasy that's created into the white supremacist scope to make them feel comfortable so that they don't see themselves as the perpetrators.
0: Absolutely. And you know, there was a conversation the other day I saw on the Ben Dixon show where there was a lady in the middle, but she just says, you know, white supremacy is just gaslighting. You know, it's just a major part of it's gaslighting. It's just going outside, walking outside, and you like the sky is blue, the grass is green, and they're like, no, no, it's not. Like the sky is purple clearly, really? grass is yellow, it's it's red, yeah. and you and I know that. And you crazy for asking me. That is a large part of white supremacy. And what many people just and, and that is and that's really what I want to drive home for this is is the point that especially growing up within a Southern context, because Missouri Missouri may be counted as a Midwestern state, but Missouri is also a very Southern place and that without its major like centers of population, right, without a place like St. Louis, it's a very rural area. And so if you grow up anywhere outside of that city or in the city has its own challenges, you don't have many opportunities. I'm very mm-hmm. fortunate in that I was genetic, total genetic lottery, right? I'm cisgendered, I'm a male. I grew up in a relatively upper middle class lifestyle, a relatively upper middle class space. Very, very lucky through all of that. Mm-hmm. And that's just genetic lottery. Like that's not my personality, that's not something I earned that is simply the lottery of, of life. Mm-hmm. And for many people, especially for many people who are white, they do not understand the kind of struggle, the kind of, the, the reality, the reality of what racism looks like, the reality yeah. of what homophobia looks like. Because yeah. we can mm-hmm. talk about, or we can have all these sorts of wonderful conversations about equality and about how mm-hmm. wonderful it is that we're all equal. To one. But at the end of the day, What we are talking about is a reality that the reason why we need to make certain laws and the reason why we have to organize and be a part of movements is because of the reality that we are facing as queer people, as people of color. And especially when you're at that intersection like you are, it is intensified. It is really intensified.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so, yeah, I, I, I'm i very curious. Growing up, can you tell me about your school experience? Because I know for myself, I grew up in a relatively white suburb, mm-hmm. middle class suburb. But at the same time, I went to a high school that was like 30-40% Black. I was mm-hmm. in the part of town that was like 30-40% Black. So, so I wasn't isolated. <laughs> I mean, there were so I mean, I had a few Brandons, but there weren't too many Brandons. You feel me? So, so there's a difference between those two. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so, so yeah, absolutely. I, I'd like to hear about yeah. your experience, sort of, sort of growing up, going to school, and just what was that like? Just, just sort of being in your person, and and, and just being in that environment.
1: About- I'm gonna be honest. It was it was a living hell every single day. I remember. High school when Barack Obama won. I remember my classmates flat out calling for his assassination right then and there. I remember getting called the N word so many times, so, so many times. The F word, you know, I was hit with that. I was also hit with the fact that I was going to drive to who I am today. I remember distinctly the high school guidance counselor flat out said, Oh, you, can't, you won't be able to make it to a four-year university, let alone a two-year community college. They thought I was going to work at the grocery store up the street from me for the rest of my life. The way they tried to illustrate me as a person that they have special needs or, oh, they're not, quote-unquote, normal or gifted. Oh, I'm gifted, all right. I'm gifted and being able to be very reputable now in the state of Missouri as a very huge advocate for LGBTQ rights and human rights. But back then, I, I didn't really have a lot of um, support. And a, uh, and a few people that really stood on my circle was is still in my circle until this day. And they grouped me on every single day from my campaign to me doing big things I think that's what helped me really truly um, elevate myself on a level. And another thing, when, it, when I left, when I graduated high school and went to Lincoln University, I went to Lincoln as an out person. I didn't even come out until, come out even as gay until right after I got to Lincoln, and that was because I wanted to, I felt comfortable going to a place where it is a historically black college, not knowing the, the, our own community standpoints of it, but it really helped me uh, learn a, a considerable amount of who I am as an individual, being in a community where I didn't even get to see Openly gay or openly trans individuals just living their life like it's golden. I was dealt with the negative sides of what it means to be LGBTQ. Also, I dealt with the to- the area of tokenism. I, you know, I'm good friends with Kendall. They're the black kid, or I'm friends with Kendall, the black gay kid, and and honestly. They tried to hide the fact they didn't even want to acknowledge uh, my Hispanic ancestry, the fact that my father came from say, Puerto Rico. And it was before I graduated high school. It was going through what well, our name is going to be on our diploma. And I thought I scratched out my name, my full name that was on records. And I put Kendall Canine Martinez right because My father, even though he is deceased, he still is a part of me. And I recognize that if it wasn't fun for him, I wouldn't be here today. And being Puerto Rican is also part of my identity, not just being Black.
0: Great, It was so difficult about living at that intersection of, of, of race, especially like within the American context and among white people in a Southern context, Southern environment is, it's it's just strange. It's it's like, I mean, it's really like you're in a house of mirrors at carnival. You're constantly trying to quite figure out where it is that you are because to these people or in this group, you look this way, but if you look another way, that's how you look. And that's who Mm -hmm. you are to them. And so you're constantly just sort of looking around you, trying to figure out, you know, what is, it? <laughs> you're trying to figure exactly. out. Exactly. And, and, it's, and it's something I know I struggled with while I was in school because I often look very Hispanic presenting and many people would not classify me as black where I grew up <laughs> and in um, and, and schools I went to. Um, black people would wish that you would say a word, oh, that you would say n word, would wish. Um, you know, mm-hmm. we had issues when it came to the Confederate flag back when my brother was going to that high school. Not the n-word, like the Confederate flag being like at the back of people's trucks. You know, because oh. you know Southern right? Right. You oh, know Southern
1: boys, You know Southern yes. white boys,
0: and they got that flagpole in the back of the truck, and they got the flag on. And what they would do is, is, they would take kerosene out there and they would light that thing on. I mean, not my brother, as far as I know, but students would go out there and they would light the, the and they would burn the, the, the flags off the back of the truck. Over time, that just stopped. By the time I yeah. got to school, that was way, way over, and so it See, wasn't quite.
1: Where I live in, it, it They still have a monument commemorating the Confederate soldiers. In front of the county courthouse. And actually, it wasn't until recently that they took down the Confederate battle flag, as well as the Confederate States of America flag, from in front of the county courthouse. I live in an area where Donald Trump won by over 90% um, this past election. I remember really people saying, if you've, you know, p- propagating the white Anglo Saxon hetero-normative, protestant ideology, radical ideology. Yeah. It is radical.
0: Yeah. It's very radical because it costs people their lives. You know, here in Richmond, Virginia, we did not get rid of our Confederate statues, and there are still a few hanging around, but on Monument Avenue, at the very least, we didn't get rid of ours until earlier this year, until all of ours were gone. That was a process that had to be started because of the Black Lives Matter uprising the year before. It is really incredible, especially people who are white or white presenting really just do not understand the kind of signal, the kind of message that that sends that that is a part of who we are as a society stating that is a part of who we are. That's what we're doing. Like, like that's business as usual today, like 150 Mm -hmm. years later, it's still business as usual. And it's really yeah. disturbing to be in an environment like that. That's wild. That's, that's incredibly wild. I really appreciate you bringing that up. Can you tell me maybe some about your interests while you were inside of high school? What are some of the things that you wanted to do?
1: I've always been a policy wonk. And a lot of people did not love that about me because a lot of people, they saw me as a future athlete. Here, athletics is huge, whereas, you know, stuff in policy, stuff in politics, wasn't really that amplified. I was, so in high school, I was a member of Future Business Leaders of America. I was a member of Kiwanis, a key club, student council, FFA, you name it, I was active. It was, and what kind of pushed me to my overall ambitions, so originally I was a, a nursing major. I wanted to be a nursing major because of my dear friend. Uh, he passed away from Duchenne muscular dystrophy, horrible, horrible, horrible uh, disease. Horrible disease. He passed away while we were still in high school. So I remember when I was kind of going through what I want to do after high school. I was like, um, oh, you know, I want to try this out. Well, long story short, went to college after the first two semesters of, well, first three semesters. I was like, nursing is not my forte. It's just not. And what kind of led me to my major in political science was when I had the opportunity to uh, help co-organize the the journey for justice, the march from, from the very spot where Michael Brown was murdered to the Missouri State Capitol, where we went to the governor's office in that building, demanding why he deployed the National Guard. Why is he ignoring the blatant racism that happened towards that, to that eight-year-old child? Why he's picking the side of Officer the disgraced officer from Ferguson, then taken the side of, of a black person who is on their way to bettering their life by going to school and pretty much shutting down his own dreams and aspirations due to this violence. That's what kind of helped cultivate me into what I do now. Dealing with the experiences here in Palmyra, that helped cultivate that too, because I also saw the discrepancies of how, when it comes to students who identify like me or is racially ambiguous, that is non Caucasian, they have a harder time. They have a significantly harder time. If you are not fluent in English, it's like an automatic assumption that is pretty much the propagation of that white right superiority and white right saviorism. You come to our school, you do this, you do that. You force yourself to be this type of person. We will welcome you in and we will make sure that you can be uplifted, but we're not going to help uplift you all the way. We're going to help uplift you from a distance, if right. not any. Right. And that's what led, and that's what led me to what I do today. Because I noticed that when it, when it came to my mom and her profession, when she was first hired with the primary School District, she was dealt with a lot of criticism just because we came from Southside Chicago, Illinois. When she was being that good educational resources to three to five year olds. And these white parents saw how well or how good their children would do it academically. They finally welcomed her, but it took blood, sweat, and tears. And damn it, she, she still, still to this day, have some struggles. They needed to see that this Black woman knows what she is doing. And don't, don't doubt her of her capabilities and that they is the reason why I am so resilient too.
0: It is incredibly hard to be recognized as valid, as legitimate when you are seen by the larger society, you're seen by the larger group as aberrant, as different, as, as someone to be looked at with a suspicious eye just because of who you are. You're already on the outs. And so, especially if you were the, one of the only people of color in school, let alone Hispanic and Black, I can only imagine the kind of isolation that you would feel. And I, and I really say I can only imagine because I really didn't experience that. You know, that's, it, that's, that, that, that's really incredible. Um, you know, that experience is really incredible. And I, and I can, and I totally believe you when you say that it's hell. Yeah, it is hell. A lot of people, a lot of interviews I've seen is just more of a discussion about the fact that you're a trans person and you're running for office. And I really wanted to have a discussion of who you are, right? Can you tell me about your college application experience? Can you tell me about your experience in college as well before we get to sort of you recognizing your identity? Because I know that you had stated that in, you know in the course of you being in school, your counselor Had basically looked at you and said, "Like we really don't expect you to move up more than a cashier or an assistant manager at a grocery store for the rest of your life." And I know I can still in my town, even though there are a lot of opportunities to get out of that place, if you if if you have the right money, if you have the right connections, if you're interested in the right fields you can maneuver out, even though it is a a middle-class suburb, you can maneuver out. But I know the reality for many, many, many people is much like that, where you are not expected to do much more than that. And that expectation in and of itself, is it it really feels like bigotry. Mm
1: -hmm. So in my experience, I was accepted to 11 schools that I wanted to go to, I was accepted to the University of Missouri, Columbia, I was accepted to uh, Washu, a few of the really high notable schools here in Missouri. Um, and it, it, I actually uh, applied to Lincoln last, dead last. Um, one of my cousins went to Lincoln University and so and they was like, Kendall, let's you should try Lincoln, you'll really love it. So I thought about it, I applied last minute, everything, like it was everything was sold last minute. And I remember before I was supposed to leave for a different school, I decided to take the initiative and go to Lincoln. And when I first got there, I had a déjà vu moment of I've been here before. There's a reason why I went to this school. You know, I chose to go to this school first instead of the rest of my ten or eleven schools that I applied to. And the, when I walked onto those ground on those sacred grounds, I realized that I was at a place of history. One being it is a Lincoln University, to give it some context, it is a historically Black college, university, land grant founded by the 62nd, 65th Colored Infantry of the United States Army. Historically known as the Black Harvard of the Midwest, one of the notable cases, Lloyd uh, Gaines, he was denied admittance to the University of Missouri Law School during the time of, of segregation. And shortly after the Supreme Court's ruling, he disappeared and, and so they uh, created a law school at Lincoln University and so many greats went there. And I realized I was standing on the shoulders of individuals who made significant impacts to society, especially to the black community, it led me to Really, truly, realize the greatness that is about to happen—that was going to happen to me. Another thing is, I felt that sense of welcoming, even though I—it was still kind of, you know, questionable uh, in terms of uh, my identity and everything uh, in regard to the LGBTQ community. I did feel as much, I felt so welcome. I was part of, once I got accepted in that school, I was part of the family. And they made sure that I was going to be, remain in that family as long as I live or as long as they're around. And that's what I was missing. I was missing that. I was missing that essence of here is everybody striving for that one chance, that is to become bigger, better and more beautiful than beforehand. And I wanted to make sure of that. And they showcase that that will happen. And that over time, I made so many amazing connections. And I realized that if it wasn't for Lincoln University, I would not be where I'm at today because of of that institution. I would, uh, nine times out of 10, if I would have went to the University of Missouri, or Mizzou, I would not be in politics. I would probably wouldn't even have been, been living my authentic self. I would be still struggling trying to find who I am as an individual and really not using my voice for progress and for liberation.
0: That's that, that that's
1: really incredible. Um I kinda left you speechless. I'm sorry. Yeah,
0: yeah, no, I mean, no, I mean you did. You the thing is, I love to talk. I love to talk. And yeah, that's really incredible. I mean, being able to make it out of a small town is not easy. And being a person of color is not easy, and being a queer person is not easy, and being in the south is not easy, and not coming from means is not easy and to have all those compounded and you still, and in spite of that, and in many ways, because of that, because it inspired you to move forward, it is an, a beautiful and an incredible story that I'm glad that I'm able to hear and bear witness to now. And it's, it's incredible that you described to me this this college was founded by a regimen within, the Civil War named after Lincoln and was inspired by a man who simply disappeared um, is, is really something. Um, because it, for many people who are alone in their Blackness, who are isolated and pointed out to be Black, but not have a community to sort of understand what that could mean or what others who are Black look like in terms of what are their interests? Who are they as people? And not to experience that until college, I can only imagine the the elation that you would feel, only imagine the happiness that you would feel. And I think that's beautiful. I think that's incredible. I'm really glad that you got to experience that because as you said, you wouldn't be the person that you are today without it. So your experience with your identity as who you are, especially within that town, with the amount of homophobia, with the amount of transphobia, the amount of racism and classes that you experienced, can you sort of go into me how it is that you sort of went along or, or, or matured in life your journey in life as you moved forward in being uh, the person that you are today, like in terms of your identity as a queer person, can you sort of take me through that journey, that, 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 that moment of realization that I'm different, really on up through how the world treated you and also how you treated yourself and, and sort of how you came to, to understand who you are?
1: Yeah, how I navigated that actually not really interesting. I tell myself when I was dealing with, with the issues of, of trying to not only self doubt, but also that feeling of not being normal, quote unquote. Right. Um, I was my mom, she helped me make sure that I was still valued and validated. And that really played a role into not only my self-determination, but also my, my resilience. I remember a few of my classmates in high school, they, you know, would say, just these horrible derogatory terms. You know, I'd be like, hey, that's not even cool. You know, and I meant for a very, 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 very short period of time. Before that, I would try, you know, laugh it off or, you know, be like, try to be nonchalant. But when it came down to it, it was affecting me. And then I realized that it was really truly affecting me. I had to, I, I let them know. And some of them, they'd be like, "Oh, you must be quote, you know, that word or this word." I'm like. I may not be this, or I may be in questioning. But at the end of the day, feet is in those person's shoes. Idea what that person might be going through. Another thing is, I I'm not gonna lie. It was I me trying to identify. You know, me trying to come to terms of who I am as an individual was very draining in terms of mental health. Right. I I suffered through mental health. For a number of years, I mean, Ben, you named the medication to probability I have been on it, not even joking. And it was because trying to find how to fit into this so constructed world,, right. it drove me insane. And even just past tense, I, I mean, it was a struggle to try to navigate um, at the same time. But I, I, I will have to say, me and my mom have a very, very, very close relationship. And if it wasn't for her uh, love and support, as well as validation, uh, nine times out of ten, I would not be here. Help with my, with my journey to figuring out who I am. No, I'm not gonna lie, it led to some very interesting, very interesting conversations, sometimes awkward, but right. at the same time, it played a role of seeing that that main mother's goal, that love and support, uh, how she can be a person I can, you know, that will stand by me through thick and thin.
0: Being alone in that way, so alone for so many hours a day in your main social life for so many years, and feeling that alone and being that target of that much hate, verbally from your peers and emotionally and psychologically, is torturous. It really does feel like torture. and to experience that and to go through it, is an entirely different thing than to hear it described to you. I'm not experienced, like many trans people do, that sense of feeling like the the looking glass has been flipped on you, of just not being able to quite gather or, or not being able to put their finger on quite what was different about myself. And then to recognize what it was to myself and then to realize the implications of that to my life and then also to others around me and like my immediate family and also the community and the prospects for my future. I mean, nerve wracking doesn't even begin to describe it. It has to be just mortifying, it has to be terrifying to live in that sort of environment and to to sort of experience what it is that you have experienced.
1: Yeah, and also it's a humbling experience because once you get to recognize who you are as an individual, you realize that I am able to not only stand firm of who I am as an individual, but also be able to showcase that here I am, I am here, and nothing is going to make me undermine who I am. Within my heart and soul, the person I am today. And I see, and I, I'll be honest, they say, Tinder, you be, you be living your life like it's golden, and you really be happy. I'm <laughs> like, That's the... and I'll be like, hey, because I'm not lying to myself no more. Cause I know a lot of folks who. Try to elude that their life is so honky dory, dandy do, and it's nothing of that sort. They are saddens me actually. It, it, they are questioning their very own existence, probably because they have never been shown that hey, it's okay to showcase your authentic self in any type of way that is on a positive force within you. You like right? it it makes me humble and I, that's what really helped, helped me with my journey is remaining is realizing that I'm technically one of the fortunate ones
0: and to have that realization that you are one of the lucky ones is is just to me is it's it's something that is disturbing but at the same time it just it it enrages me because it's just like how in the world do we permit as a society people to be treated like that for us to be treated like this and to be alienated and isolated and impoverished and maligned and denigrated and humiliated mm-hmm. and bullied and to just face that on a consistent basis and to sort of be expected to perform and to be like anyone else is really extraordinary it's it's part of white supremacy. As I said, it's it's that gaslighting of like, in fact, no, the sky is not blue. It looks purple to me. And that grass mm-hmm. is looking and that grass is looking mighty red. It's just this up is down sort of reality. For myself, I, I I was abused quite a bit as a kid, and I quite a lot of that sort of precipitated into rage, into anger, and to also to uh, it led to my own diagnosis as a person with bipolar type 2 where you know my emotions when i was not medicated could lead to moods or more like my moods would lead to emotions mm-hmm. that would swing and so i recognized that quite early on in that and was able to access healthcare that many people aren't able to access um, access Therapists, medication, counseling, uh, facilities that other people's that other people in many other cases don't. And I know for a fact that if it was not for that, I would not be here.
1: Yeah, that kind of segues into in one my, I was recently diagnosed with bipolar disorder myself. I go through a manic, I have more mania where I would I would go almost days without sleeping. And it'll be manic ups and manic downs. Some people they say, Kendall, why are you depressed? You're doing so good. You're doing all this work. I'm like, I really have no will to live, but I'm doing this work because I want to distract myself from that the undesired will to live. So I completely understand, you know, on that scope too.
0: When it comes to Black trans women in particular, the life expectancy is around 35 in the United States. It's around 35 years old. And bipolar disorder is a disease like any other disease. It can cost you your life. It is a disease that often takes off the brakes to our moods. So sort of Transitioning or cycling between different moods is faster and it's more intense. And it's and it's harder, genuinely harder for you to compensate for. Being in a, in a position like that, I can really only imagine the kind of struggle, the kind of pain that you've been through. It's it's very important that we have these discussions because mental health journeys, mental health struggles are swept to the side, and are considered taboo, and not a part of polite conversation, yeah. Um, yeah. let alone a conversation for politicians to have, that politicians mm-hmm. aren't people, that mm-hmm. politicians aren't human beings like anyone else is, and yeah. it's it's really disheartening to not only go through all of that, quote unquote, lose the genetic lottery of being a Black person, of being Hispanic, of being queer, and in your case, being a woman, and going through that experience, surviving that lotto, surviving early life. And then when you get to the other side of all of that, to the promise of of college and adulthood and so-called freedom, to be away from, if you can get away from your hometown or home environment, if that is not conducive, Mm -hmm. to sort of be approached, sort of almost like, I don't wanna say be gaslit, but yeah, just be gaslit and say that none of that experience really matters, now is the present, and now is the time that you are to cast away everything. And even if you were to cast away memories, trauma is physical. Trauma mm-hmm. is neurological, it's emotional, it's psychological. Mm-hmm. It stays with you over time. It makes an impact on how you think and who you are. And it's just not something as simple as go to a therapy session or take this medication and your cure. It is, mm-hmm. it is a way to go about addressing or at the very least mitigating the symptoms of the disease that is caused mainly mm-hmm. by trauma.
1: hmm yeah. And honestly, I came from the time I was starting to plan my candidacy to the end of my candidacy. I didn't even realize I was in a month-long manic episode on both sides, both the manic high and the manic low. And it wasn't until... I realized that I wasn't really truly happy within myself this past May. And I realized that I'm covering something much bigger than what everybody else can see or what I can see. I remember, like, especially during some months, I would literally work 23 hours per day, straight on, doing everything I can do. To mask up this unhappiness, and I would fake it to make it. So many times, I mean, it, it, I remember there was events I would be like, "I'm doing good," even though I'm really on the verge of <laughs> having a major breakdown. Right. And actually, it it, it triggered warning for the listeners. It led me to my suicide attempt. It, it really, truly it really did. During that
0: time, while you were running for office, because I know what it's like to, you know, I bipolar type two. It sounds more like you have bipolar type one, but for me, I could use a bit of hypomania as a way to, uh, to push myself as a way to work on that project for, as a way to wake up. After four or five hours' sleep and continue working for another fifteen hours or so, yeah, and just sort of go through that consistent cycle over and over and over again,
1: mm-hmm. but can you
0: tell me the build up to your run and also until the moment that you decided to drop out for your own mental health? Can you run me through that journey mentally yeah
1: mentally? yeah, yeah, so. It was around this time last year, actually, I was planning, uh, it was after after the presidential election, I was very motivated, I'm not going to lie, I was very motivated, but I was also defeated because I was working on a a state senatorial campaign, and the candidate lost by very close margins, and I was motivated, you know, I, I, I had that mania peak or that mania high so I was like I'm gonna do this I'm gonna do this I want to be that game changer in that process I was like okay I know I got the connects of everybody like I'm cool calm correct but when it got to the nitty-gritty of starting to really make my name out there as Missouri House Rep candidate Kendall Martinez Wright I felt that immense, immense, immense pressure, uh, that pressure to be in a way, somebody that i as well as that pressure of also trying to be, trying to showcase still my authenticity. I realized also during that time frame, kind of leading up to the moments of me closing, I can't think, I had, I realized that. I was showing so much out of me. Out, I deeply took myself to nothing. I was using various substances, um, mainly alcohol. I was, I was drinking very heavily. I was literally using anything and everything to try to get me better, you know, trying to make me feel happy. There was moments that I felt like here I am actually in the trenches of the Missouri General Assembly as an advocate passing laws, really that's changing Missourians' lives. I was even being amplified, having connections with folks that I was able to change their minds or hearts of voting differently than what they was originally going to do. I mean, I I felt that type of in a way being let down, which you see, I don't blame nobody, definitely don't blame myself, but I definitely felt like I was just abandoned, yeah, and that led into the downfall, the mania downfall of into my depressive episode where I would push 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 myself in one instance uh it was like a few weeks before my suicide attempt i would, Me, I went to go to St. Louis to step away from not only the campaign trail, but just to get myself happy. And I remember I had some emails and somebody inquired me to give my little point on a case. And I remember exactly. I hit batty maddy mode, like batshit crazy mode. Sorry for the language but I really truly did I, and my my closest friends saw me for the first time ever having that moment of literally having a meltdown and I remember vividly frantically calling people asking them to use their DSM fifth edition to read and to be able to for an interview of me getting given the, my statements of, about this case, that's when I realized that something isn't right. It, it, things just really started to really took a turn after that moment. And I just remember, all. Uh, I won't go into details, but there were some events that happened that just really catapulted that feeling of um, not being truly seen, not truly really being heard, uh, not acknowledged, and the night uh, uh, the, um, actually, I got home from a almost a four week trip. I got home on September twelfth. That night, I proceeded to take eighty nine Benadryl and. Um, it was it, if it wasn't for my mom finding me, I would have been dead. And afterwards, uh, after I got out of the hospital, I made that decision to close my race.
0: I mean, I dropped from college because I was realizing because one of the first symptoms of bipolar disorder that many people don't know, especially young people, is anxiety. And when I mean anxiety, mm-hmm. I mean anxiety to the point like where you like feel it in your arms and legs, where mm-hmm. you like feel in your chest, you feel it in your scalp. Yeah. You feel the tension in your lower back. You feel the tension in your calves. Anxiety that like, it's not just physical, like I'm nervous, anxiety, like you're laying in bed at night and the muscles around your bones and mm-hmm. your leg and your arms won't relax.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And
0: um, you have no mental peace. You have no psychological mm-mm. peace. You have nowhere to go. You have no physical peace and you really don't know what else to do. And it's it's an incredibly scary experience. I didn't really recognize my own diagnosis as being a person who could have bipolar disorder really until I decided to come back home. And that being a triggering environment for me because of past events and and, and sort of ongoing um, issues that it it sort of became clear to me that I am experiencing mood swings that vary throughout the day and Mm
1: -hmm. they're
0: causing me serious physical duress and so Mm -hmm. at that point I decided for myself most definitely that it was time to check myself in in order so that I can get an accurate view as to what exactly was going on, because, you know, when you are so angry that you're sweating and it can last for an hour or two, and Mm -hmm. when you get to that point and you can't sleep, it alters the way that you perceive others, perceive yourself, and how you perceive your own life and future. It's... it is it is a serious disease that can it can kill you and so I, I I really commend you for being open about that because it is incredibly difficult to be a politician period you know neurotypical or mentally healthy or otherwise but also to have this in a public forum to have that discussion or at least to be out and open in the public with that mm-hmm you know, with that being now tied to your identity is incredibly brave. Yeah. And it's it's moving for myself. It's, it's really moving. I'm incredibly proud of you for being able to admit that to yourself and also to be able to seek the help that you need because genuinely in that state of mind, oftentimes it seems a lot simpler to simply end your life.
1: Oh, yeah. Not- Another part is the fact that Kind of breaks my heart actually that it took me almost my own self demise to realize I need, I need more additional resources and help than what I was given beforehand. Rural Missouri doesn't really have a lot of mental health professionals especially in my neck of the woods, and usually most times, most professionals, they have caseloads of over six to seven thousand patients, give or take. I know for sure if it wasn't me going across the river to Illinois, to Quincy, I mean, yeah, I would definitely would have had a much harder time.
0: Yeah, and, and, you know, that is a large part of, again, why I wanted to speak to you, because it is that, it's that disparity and discrepancy of resources between the rural and the urban, and between the densely populated and the sparsely populated, where you do not have access to the resources that one needs in order to live, in order to survive, and not being able to live with those scars and not being able to adjust to the changes that it makes to who you are without the need, if you're not able to get the help that you need in order to adjust to the impact of your lived experience, the symptoms of the disease can often lead to really terrifying, awful outcomes hmm yes um, I'm really glad that you're here today Kendall I'm really glad that you're around I'm glad that I'm getting a chance to speak to you uh that's that's really I'm really glad that you're here I also I want to ask your activism when it came to Black Lives Matter because mm-hmm. I know you've mentioned it when it came to the neighborhood right outside of St. Louis where Michael Brown was killed can you sort of go through your experience in that and, and and sort of walk me through that? Because a lot of people don't realize that, particularly Black Lives Matter, particularly in 2014, around the death of Mike Brown, it was Black women and it was queer Black people within the urban and and uh, within the urban and rural areas, particularly urban and suburban areas, that rose up in response to that killing because that is a message that we all know Mm -hmm. that is a story that we all know that kind of fear is something that we all can recognize and when we as black queer people and black women black queer women are confronted with that it was you all who rose up in opposition to that and i would really like to know your story and your experience with the black lives matter movement 2014.
1: Yeah, it it was a very pivotal moment. It was a, I will say, it was a very big learning experience, especially when it came to really amplifying voices that are often left unheard. When it came down to the overall message, yeah, we need to ensure that every Black life is worthy. But also being able to amplify those voices. I remember there was conversations after after the journey for just to justice March that we need to we need to be more focused on how black men are the main ones being killed. And it was like, no, we also need to recognize that it is a multifaceted position. It isn't just this, this monolith uh, this this is the one and only population that's dealing with this. It is, a, it is multiple entities within that community that is being systemically disenfranchised and victimized because of the roots of white supremacy. I also For sure, like it helped me lead into ways that I would never expected. Like I became, I was part of over, God, I don't even know. I I want to guesstimate over thirty different boards uh, within the uh, in between the years two thousand fourteen to two thousand nineteen. I was on so many boards, going on, going on, so many, going to so many meetings, different events. Um, at one point, I was uh, part of a national task force uh, in response to Ferguson. Um, I, I remember being at the seat of the table, and I mean, I having my voice be heard, but not truly heard. Um, and that led to the fight in the Missouri Capitol. Um, after the just after the march, I, that's when my career in legislative strategy began. And I remember walking into those marble-clad hallways of the Missouri State Capitol. I had to learn everything on my own, from the procedural things in, the, in both the Missouri House and the Missouri State Senate, to see, okay, how can I effectively track a piece of legislation? And how can I make sure that my voice is being heard at the table 100%? And if it wasn't for a few of my good friends and amazing people, if it wasn't for them um, assisting me in that time frame, I definitely would still be having a hard time getting that message of breaking down the racial injustices in not only the state of Missouri but nationwide, and also being able to have the uh, very, very uncomfortable conversations that often gets put uh, swept under the rug because it's too uncomfortable because it's going to make certain folks be feeling some type of way, keeping those conversations going. I can't stand when people they have a moment of true dialogue where people not only is people's emotions and feelings are at its most vulnerability, but when it gets to that moment, they want to stop. Right. They want to stop. And I'm like, no, we need to keep this going. We have, to keep it, we have to keep this going because until we can move past that moment of vulnerability and move past that sensitive period and realize that, oh, wait, this is a sign that my heart and mind is actually opening up and possibly changing we're not gonna see nothing get done. And and, and that that also follows through with having also that knowledge, having that knowledge. uh, There is so many databases out there, legitimate databases, legitimate resources out there that is there for free, that you can access to help break those to help bring it down to a level where people can not only understand, but they can be like, okay, you are actually knowledgeable about this. Let's continue having this conversation. And let's also continue getting people uncomfortable because we live in a a structure nowadays and it's really getting amplified now, especially with all this bullshit as. CRT claims, it's oh, not the, uh, re, re, we're not trying to say that white people are evil and that black people or people exactly. of color are the saviors. No, we're going to talk about how the fact that uh-huh. this country is really built on the backs of, of uh-huh. black uh-huh. indigenous people uh-huh. and we are not getting take, we're not going to take where we want to have at least one itty bitty Amount of credit, y'all want to be quick at taking it away because they realize the fuck ups they did. We have to let them know because I've been in rooms where I would make people hella uncomfortable, hella uncomfortable. And they'll be like, Kendall, you go way too deep off in the end. I'm like, no, baby, I'm getting started, boo. I'm getting started because this is what you need to hear. You need to hear the facts. You need to also see how these policies in the past has influenced to what is leading today. And if you can't move past how these policies, these laws that were passed centuries ago, decades ago, that, that systemically kept black, brown, indigenous people in peril, then you are also part of the problem. You are legitimizing those very same policies that were enacted centuries ago or decades ago. Flat out, we have to keep these conversations going. We have to move past that point of uncomfortability. We need to go from getting people uncomfortable to getting them uncomfortable and then letting them finally coast through that uncomfortable to back to comfortable, and where collective action can really truly start taking place.
0: That is the entire purpose. That is the entire purpose of why I started this, is to have the uncomfortable, marginal conversations that are out on the margins that people don't want to fully have, that people don't want to recognize, that people don't want to discuss because that is incredibly important because those conversations are where the boundary lies, are where the power of marginalized communities comes from. Clearing the space in any way, making the space black, making the space more feminine, yep. is not just a, a goal on a spreadsheet or the purpose of a law or just like some sort of moral good. It is literally about moving the needle in terms of what we recognize as human. And in Mm -hmm. terms of democracy, in terms of understanding who we are legislating for and who we are, because until we make that, until we understand that, until that the scope of who we are in order to understand more about who we are, that is necessary in order for us to make a more perfect union, for us to make better laws, for us to make a better society, to make a better tomorrow for people Mm -hmm. without those conversations that push the boundaries. Yes. Then then you just don't get to the point where we have honest conversations about what's actually going on in the lives of people across the country. And if we're not having those real conversations, then what are we discussing?
1: Yeah, and and, and that also segues into the fact that there are people that actually do know of the atrocities, they know that they fucked up. They know, like people, some folks, they do know downright that they, that our history, has a very, very ugly past. But until they can face the mirror themselves and realize that, hey, look, I might be part of the issue of why you we know, continue having this, we're gonna still go through this. And people need to realize that, I'm not trying to make you feel like you should be in prison for the rest of your life. I want mm-hmm. you to elevate yourself to, beyond what you were in the past because the past is always with us no matter if you see it or not it's always with us it's until you take that moment of clarity and realizing that you have that power it just takes takes yourself to realize that you got that power to truly move forward and that's where it's needed
0: what was your Platform. Did you run inside the Democratic Party?
1: Yeah, I ran as a Democrat. Um, I my platform was education, human rights, agriculture, infrastructure, mainly agriculture infrastructure and education. And education, with my mom being a, a, a pre kindergarten special ed teacher. Um, Working in a rural public school district where we have politicians on the Republican Party actively trying to defund public schools and close down public schools with various bullshit stuff. And notice all of a sudden
0: we start integrating schools, the public schools aren't worth funding.
1: Yeah, yeah. I wanted to make sure that public schools, both rural and urban, uh, receive proficient funding, not not the bare minimum. I want them to get, I, I'm the type of person where we, we give them all our coins. We are teaching the future generation. And right now, more than ever, and I I will be, I'm gonna be honest. When you codify some of these parents that is that is mainly trying to protect their children in a way they're not being taught the true life lessons of being a good role model for their own children. And so when it comes down to it I'm a firm believer that we need to make sure that education system are treated as equitably as possible because when I look at schools in in St. Louis County and St. Louis cities, and they are closing left and right charter schools. They're being so poor money that they don't even care whether or not the school has been open for only two years. They'll close it down because they don't make no, it, it's a monstrosity. It's a flat out in the face to the children because they are the ones that are actually truly being undermined, not the adults. The the adults already have the high school diploma or the GED or whatever. It's the children that we are. I want to make sure that during my campaign, I fought that good fight because we are, I see right now, we are in a state of failure. Missouri is ranked 49th in the country of uh, teacher salary. That is a monstrosity. Teachers on average here in the state of Missouri makes only upwards of $31,000 a year. That's beyond, that is not even livable wages, especially for a family of four. So when it comes down to it, you know, I'm all about that. Agriculture, agriculture is a huge staple in, in Missouri. We need to protect these small Town farmers, because a lot of these farms they're getting over overrun by these large corporate farms that is not for the interest of the people. Right. they only just interest in the money, and you know, and, and just uh, that privatization that is causing these food prices to get beyond sky high proportions. Um, as well as infrastructure. Infrastructure is another area that I am concern, concerned. We have, so a little bit of context, Missouri has I-70. I-70 structures from St. Louis City, the, the banks of the Mississippi, all the way to Kansas City. If you ever been on 270, it looked like a, a damn media shower from Armageddon hit that road. (laughs) It is horrible. It is horrible. Right. When when there is towns, there is a town in Iron County that really still have lead in the pipes. Their water system hasn't been updated since 1943. That is a public health crisis. When there is areas where both in rural and urban areas that have inadequate uh, broadband, uh, broadband accessibility, that is critical. At uh, the height of the pandemic, I remember hearing stories of how parents and, and, and their children had to go to a McDonald's or they had to go to a Walmart parking lot. So then they can do their schoolwork or attend a doctor's appointment. College students, they're having to go to a Starbucks or sit in their car in front of a Starbucks to complete their finals. Like that's that is that is essence and oligarchial business that is only self-benefiting themselves, not for the people. And high key. It needs to be, to be torn down because people are suffering in more ways than other, And these folks are really just, you know, they're living their life like it's golden. And it's, it's diabolical. And that's the reason why I wanted I want to run and I may, and I had my campaign was because for far too long, people have been suffering. And it was time for somebody to actually show up, give a shit, and really raise up their voices.
0: And how uncommon that is. How uncommon that is for politicians in general and for people in general to not show up and and, and genuinely give a shit about what's going on in the community and the kind of help that those communities need. Mm-hmm. Yep.
1: It's dire. Also it, a part of infrastructure, it kind of goes and coincide with healthcare. Over the last four years, actually, there has been over eight hospital closings in various areas of Missouri, particularly in rural areas, that means that if you have a heart attack, you might have to go two, three, maybe even four hours away just so that you can get proper healthcare. If you're having a heart attack, you may have minutes before it's this summer. the Missouri Supreme Court finally agreed to allow individuals to apply for the state insurance, the GOP was trying was finding the hardest to not, not only allow over 278 thousand Missourians accessible health care, but they, was, they were they was damn near willing to defund the program altogether. So mind you. The GOP was willing to defund to elderly individuals who are in nursing homes. They are willing to defund individuals who have disabilities because other people that doesn't quote unquote fit that narrative need health care. They don't see fit that a 22 year old individual who may look healthy, but have mental health issues, don't get the same services or same benefits as a person who is in their 80s and lived a wonderful, thriving life. They don't see the fact that there is a 50-year-old individual who only works entry-level jobs due to their family history of raising up to kids by themselves the access to health care. You know, they talk, they talk about being pro-life, but they're pro-life until after you get out, the, get out of the mother's womb. And then afterwards, you're on your own.
0: Precisely. And it's really important that we have many voices coming out of those communities and going back into those communities to make the case From that perspective, from your perspective of what the needs are for those communities, given the kind of assault that the social rights, the ability to have health care, the ability to be able to drink clean water, the ability to be able to have a decent school to go to, the basics within society are under relentless assault Mm -hmm. by Republicans and right-wingers. And that is incredibly important that we keep that in mind. And it's also incredibly important that people like yourself from those communities are those making those arguments. That is is important. That is incredibly important because without you all making those points, the Republicans just run with it. They just run the show. And when they run the show, we see what happens. When they run unopposed, In an area, when they dominate an area like where you live, we see what happens. Mm -hmm. Very important that we keep those um, issues in mind. Very important that we make sure that our voices are are heard and, and known on these issues and that we have representatives who are trying to represent us. It is really incredible that you do represent, that you are a representative of that district that you went out of your way and put your life and your mind on the line in order to go about making the case for a better world. And that's really important. I think that's very important. And I'm really glad that you were here today. I'm very glad that you are here today to tell me about that and to to inform everyone as to why this is so important.
1: Yeah. I'm really grateful for this case. Even after my run, I told people, I'm going to continue to shake the damn table. Not shaking the table. I'm going to flip some tables. Because right. right now, more than ever, if you are politicizing public health, for example, if yeah. you are politicizing public health, you're inhumane. You are inhumane. If you can tell me to my face that a two-year-old child who was infected because somebody choose to be careless, that's that's of God's planning, you're in her name. If you if you quote unquote say you will take a bullet for this country, but won't even take a fucking immunization, don't talk to me. Don't even breathe my oxygen because. You are the reason why people are dying, people are suffering, and there are no words to express that things need to come to a change. And I feel like that with my with my voice, I know for sure things are going to come to a change real quick.
0: Yeah, I, I think I, I think that's very um, I think that's very that's very powerful and I'm really glad that you were here to tell me about that today and to to give us your experience. i read within a VPM NPR article that you had experienced sexual assault while you were in St. Louis. And Mm -hmm. I know that that is a reality that many women face, and I know that that in particular is a reality that many trans women face. Hmm. Of course, I I don't want you to relive that experience. Your experience as a person with something like that is really really something that I would like to understand in the context of you wanting to be in that city as a representative, be in your body, be in your person during that time, because it is so,
1: I, I will say that it was a learning it, it, that experience was a very huge learning experience um in terms of not only my self power and my my fight and my tenacity, but also it was it was a learning experience within my own self of being able to say uh-uh this is you this is one thing we're not gonna do. When it initially happened, I remember I I, I I don't know if it was the spirit of my father or something, but I was like, uh-uh, not today. This is not gonna, this is not how it's gonna go down. Because too many people have dealt with that, and also, you know, it, it, it specifically in the in the Black trans community, you know, there's individuals that have been demised due to this, you know. And so I was like, when it came down to it, I'm gonna I'm gonna let them know, like, uh-uh, you got the wrong person. And um,
0: it, it,
1: it 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 it's a, it's a huge navigation, it, and it's a continuing navigation actually. Because I have to, I had to realize within myself that, you know, when when things start happening, I had to recognize this is really happening. And in some ways, that helped me reaffirm who I am um, as an individual.
0: Thank you for that. I really appreciate that. This was Kendall Martinez-Wright. She was a candidate for the Missouri 5th House District. She's an inspiration to me. I'm so glad to hear your message and the amount of passion that you have for what it is that you believe and the struggle that you've been through in life and how proud I am of you for being able to continue to deal with that and struggle through it and with that today. I am very grateful for the fact that you were able to join me. It, it really means a lot.
1: Thank you for reaching out. It's still sometimes a dream, you know, that I actually went through the whole process, but being truly seen, but I do, I also want to thank you for allowing me to not only share my story, share my experiences, but hopefully, as I said before, uplift, uh, inspire people. Um, my, main, my main goal when I initially ran was I didn't want to be that history maker. I really wanted to be that person that really, truly showed that been showing up and giving shit and continuing to show up and give a shit, because that's what we need. We need people that just isn't doing this for the for the pomp and circumstance. We need people that really, truly is fighting that fight. Uh, for, for not only a better Missouri, but for a better United States of America.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. If it is not for people like you, there is no democracy in the country. There would be no democracy in the limited amount that we have. There would be no we in we the people. And on top of that, this project of mm-hmm. mine, this project of mine would not be possible without voices like yours without people like you doing the work that you do, without you being around, without people like you being around to do the work, I would have no one to speak to. And so you are welcome back here anytime, any day, to to discuss with me the issues that matter. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for
1: coming. Thank you so much. Make sure you follow me on, on social media, You can follow me on Twitter at Kendall Kanai MW. That's K-E-N-D-A-L-L-K-A-N-I-M-W on Twitter. And then you can also follow me on Facebook under the same uh, Kendall Kanai MW.